And as we stand on the promises of God, it's right that we turn to His Word and hear what those promises are. And Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be reading this morning. And we're going to read together the first uh, 13 verses. Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for our reading of it this morning. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Sovereign Lord, we give you thanks for this time together. Lord, we ask that as we read your Word, you would give us understanding. Lord, we don't want to simply be knowledgeable about what you've said, though. We ask that you would also give us a desire to be transformed by what we read and sent out to live by it. For, Lord, these are promises that we don't simply believe as we've sung These are promises that we want to stand on, that we want to live our lives in light of. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless us in your grace and in your love. And, Lord, that you would transform us through the renewing of our minds according to your word. We ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an awful lot going on in the media at the moment uh, about, I suppose, how we ought to love one another, not... Um, as uh, a town or as a nation, but as uh, a world, as a species, as mankind, as it were. We're being told by a whole variety of different groups and individuals that if we uh, truly love uh, those around us, then we'll want to commit to transforming our society. And it's through all sorts of different means, whether it be through trying to combat climate change, whether it be through the reorganizing of our society to make it Uh, more focused on certain groups according to um, ethnicity or gender or preference or whatever it may happen to be. But if we are to be truly loving 
we're told. If we're going to do well and succeed, then we have to be united together in doing all of these things all of the time. Now, the challenge is uh, for our society that most of these things contradict one another in some degree or uh, another, and so it becomes almost impossible to live out the kind of life that we're being pressured to live out uh, by our society and by those who are uh, making these particular issues, whatever their issue is, uh, the big thing that's going to bring true and lasting change that's going to make sure we're still here in 10 or 50 or 100 years, to make sure that our society doesn't just survive, but thrives and flourishes as a place that's fair and kind and and so on. It's not just a tall order, I want to suggest. It is impossible to achieve these ends through the means that we're being told by these groups in our society. Not that there's anything wrong with much of what we're being told, But the idea that this is going to bring lasting change to us uh, all across the world simply is more than any one of these particular issues can actually accomplish. There is, however, something that can be done that can bring true and lasting change, not just to an individual people group or ethnicity or culture, but our entire world. And we know this because it's not just an aspiration that's been expressed a desire that's been spoken of in this a wistful hope that if we could all just get there, it would all be fine. It's something we've actually seen do this, has actually proven itself as a means of transforming whole sections of our world and bringing not just tremendous hope, but great blessing. And Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 15, when he encourages the church that's struggling with its unity, it's struggling to hold itself together because of ethnic and religious and cultural background issues all coming uh, to the surface. He encourages them to love one another for Christ's sake. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? Just love one another for Christ's sake and everything else will be fine. Now, Paul wasn't saying it as simplistically as that. But at its core, that is ultimately the message to the church. This is how simple it really is to see transformation come to our world. Paul begins in the first six verses by saying to the church, with all of its struggles, this tiny, almost insignificant group in comparison to the hugeness of the Roman Empire, that we live for one another because we need each other. This is core to the life of the church, to the survival of the church. Paul knows this because he's gone around and he's spent at least a couple of missionary journeys spreading the gospel and seeing little churches spring up all over the place wherever he and the other apostles have gone. But the problem is as soon as they spring up, they immediately begin to fall apart again. And this has been Paul's ongoing frustration. It's why we have almost everything he wrote in the New Testament. He's seeking to address issues that have arisen within the church that are causing it to fragment and break apart again just as soon as uh, they've been formed through the, the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of all of these people from all of these different places. And so Paul encourages the church. We live for one another because we need each other. Paul 
starts out by saying that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, immediately we start running into some concerns here. Who are the strong and who are the weak? And how on earth is this a means of getting on together if the strong are those who are right and the weak are those who are wrong? Then how can the ones who are right possibly live with those who are wrong? We should bring correction. God is a God of truth and righteousness. And so we must deal with this problem and not simply live with it. Is this Paul telling the church, just, you know, get along with each other by whatever means necessary. Just maintain unity for the sake of being united. Because that's what so much of our society says, isn't it? We are told that we are to be united because it's good to be united. But Paul's not saying that. Paul knows too much of God. He understands too much of the work of Christ and what the gospel is to simply say we should just get along for the sake of getting along. He identifies these two groups of people, the strong and the weak. And just to to be clear, we remember, we don't read chapter 15, divorced from chapter 14. And in chapter 14, as Joel um, very uh, clearly laid out for us last week, and we're very grateful to Joel for that, that we have uh, struggles within the church over the sort of behavior that's acceptable and not acceptable. One of the great difficulties of Jewish believers coming into the Christian faith is that so much of their traditions are are, are now surplus to requirements. They can continue on in them if they wish, but they're not necessary for life with God. What is necessary is a living relationship with Christ. And they're struggling hard with that because they've been told these traditions are fundamental to who you are. So which of them do we lay aside and which of them must we maintain and so on? And as we read in the book of Acts, all of this comes out as the apostles try and figure out now the Gentiles are coming into the church and don't have any of these traditions. What do we do? What's necessary and what's not necessary anymore? And Paul, I think, is identifying those who are strong here as those Christians who recognize what is necessary and keep that, and what is unnecessary and feel no obligation to continue that on. So the abstaining from certain kinds of food, or not drinking alcohol, or observing uh, certain days and esteeming those days more than others throughout the year. Paul's not saying there's necessarily fundamentally anything wrong with those things, but you don't need them in order to be a Christian. And I think he's identifying the strong as those who recognize that Christ is sufficient as a Savior. And the weak are those who are still clinging on to much of these traditions in the belief that somehow doing these things is what is making them closer to God, is is somehow involved in their salvation. And Paul astonishingly says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. He's saying that they are to be gentle and to recognize that whilst these things need to be corrected, there does need to be a patience and a gentleness expressed by one group towards the other. He is very clear that there are those who are right and those who are wrong, and there needs to be correction. Paul is is never shy about expressing that idea. He does it himself again and again in this letter, as well as in uh, his other epistles. But 
He's advocating here that they live together and love one another, and that be the means by which you draw out correction in those who are weak. You encourage them and you bless them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And if that means that you have to sacrifice some of the things that you know are are perfectly fine for the sake of your brothers whose consciences are a little bit more tender than yours, then fine. Because at the end of the day, you're strong. You know you have Christ. What more do you need? So, we bear with those who are weak. Paul recognizes here that this is the means by which the church grows in its unity. Not by those who are right stamping their feet and demanding that you must change immediately, but recognizing that there must be a time allowed for people to grow and to mature and to develop. And when we think of our own lives and our own Christian walk, that's something that we all know, isn't it? Although it's not something we're always necessarily very good at embodying, because we know if we think back over the years how we've grown. We've learned so much from God um, in His Word and through the example of uh, other Christians and through um, pastors and missionaries and great examples to us, and we are not what we once were. But we recognize that we have taken time to get from that place of relative immaturity to where we stand today, this place of greater maturity. And we didn't do it overnight. It wasn't just a moment where we woke up and realized all of these things. We grew in our faith. And people around us allowed us the time to grow. And they were gentle with us. And they confronted sin that needed to be confronted. And we'll come to that. And they addressed things that needed to be addressed. But it was within the bounds of a loving relationship. And so if we demand others immediately correct themselves... We deny the reality that we haven't gone on that particular journey, that we need to bear with one another in love and with gentleness, not for the sake of maintaining unity only, but because this is what God's people do. This is how God maintains unity within his people. Paul's strategy is that as mature Christian men and women live with less mature Christian men and women and live out lives of holiness and godliness, a good example, live, the key word I think really for us is consistent lives. The example that they embody for those around them will lead those around them on as they then express in word what they're doing and why they're doing it. Why some things don't matter, why some things really do, why some things should be abstained from and other things should be embraced regardless of our cultural baggage that holds us back from some of these things, perhaps. Word and deed go together. We bear with the failings of the weak. We're not interested in making sure that everybody knows we are right. What we want is our neighbor's good, our brother and sister's good. We want them to be blessed and built up and mature, and so we'll live with them to see that done. He goes on and he says, For Christ didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then he says that Scripture has been written for our encouragement that we might have hope. Hope in what, though? Hope in life with God, glorifying God, living with Him, loving Him, serving Him, and doing all of this together in a mature Christian family. All of Christian life is tending in that direction. And so when we live with one another, not to please ourselves, but to bless our brothers and sisters, that's what we're doing. We're living in that course, on that trajectory. 
It's a softer way of bringing change to the church instead of simple, harsh confrontation. Loving kindness is the key. And just because it isn't perhaps as clear-cut as we would like it to be in the moment doesn't make it any less effective. This is why Jesus is used as Paul's example. Now, Jesus is used for two reasons here. One is because Jesus is the means by which this transformation comes. Speaking of transformation apart from Jesus is futile because, as we all know, with the laundry list of broken New Year's resolutions behind us, we're not very good at resolving to change and just changing. It is always a struggle. It is always hard, and we often fail. What Paul knows, what we know, is that we need transformation to come from someone who is powerful enough to actually reach into our lives and change our hearts, make us different so that we live different as a result, instead of living different in the hope that somehow we'll become different over time. And Paul also wants to use Jesus as an illustration here because Jesus himself comes, doesn't just descend on a cloud from heaven and snap his fingers, and either do away with all of the unrighteous, which is everyone, or instantly redeem everyone in the world just through sovereign power alone and just transform everybody. Jesus comes, and he lives out 30-something years of life among a people. He goes with a people through all of their difficulties, through all of their frustrations, through all of their failures. Jesus witnesses countless acts of selfishness and idolatry and adultery and envy and all manner of sin, as well as a desire for holiness and repentance and so on. He walks through it all with his people. And then he dies. And we recognize that in his death and in his resurrection that we have benefited from, even though we didn't walk and talk with him 2,000 years ago, that although there was a moment where we were saved, when we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, we recognize that that moment in time was arrived at through an awfully long journey, where God, offended by our sin, would have been totally right and righteous to judge us and condemn us and destroy us. And yet he didn't. He allowed us to walk through years, perhaps decades of life, not knowing him, gently leading, guiding, witnessing to us constantly through our family and our friends and our church and through whatever means it is, so that in that moment when we are saved, there is actually a huge long train of events that have led up to that moment. Because God doesn't just accomplish ends in his sovereign power. He also seeks to use means to arrive at those ends. He uses people like you and me to share the gospel with people who aren't saved so that as a result of that process of hearing the good news, God in his sovereign power does save them. But he uses all sorts of things to arrive at that conclusion. And that's what Jesus does, and that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus doesn't just arrive and demand immediate change. He calls for repentance. He confronts sin, absolutely. But he does so as a result, or as a part, rather, of a whole journey of life with these people that he's calling out to. Jesus has, to use the words of an author who I've completely forgotten over the years, he negotiates a hearing, as it were, with the people around him. He has 
a right to speak to them about these things because he's lived with them and he understands them and they know where he's coming from, though they find it difficult to accept what he's said. And this is what Jesus expects of us. This is what Paul is telling us here. That we walk with people and we love them and we care for them so that when we do have to confront them, if we do with some sin or problem or failing or weakness, whatever it might be, they know that we're not just arriving in their life as if we are judging them as righteous people judging horrible sinners and telling them where they ought to go and what they ought to do before we just clear off and leave them to it. They know that when we come to them and say, this is a problem, Or can I help you with this? Or why are you struggling with that? We're doing so because we really love them. And we've spent time with them and we've cared for them and we've laughed with them and cried with them and fed them and housed them and and whatever else it might be. People will listen to a rebuke from somebody in that place far more readily than they will a complete stranger who marches into their life, demands change, and then marches out again. The work of Jesus transformed the strong and the weak while they were sinners. Christ saved them all together into one family, and his desire is that they walk together in the same kind of loving sacrifice he has shown to them. And so the sacrifice of Jesus is to them as individuals the thing that colors everything they see. It's not just how you were saved. It's how you see your relationships with other people who are saved. It's how you see your relationships with people who aren't yet saved. It's how you see everything. I was watching a thing the other day um, where somebody was asking the question, in the story The Wizard of Oz, what color is the Emerald City? Which seems like a foolish question to ask. We all instinctively know the Emerald City must be green because it's called the Emerald City. But if you remember the story, The Wizard of Oz, if you've ever read that story, you'll know that the Emerald City isn't ever actually described in any color. It's called the Emerald City, but it's not because it's green. We don't know what color it was. We're never told. But what we are told is that the, uh, the Wizard of Oz demands all of the inhabitants of the Emerald City to wear green-lensed glasses so that everything they see is green. And that's why they call it the Emerald City, because everything around them is green. It's not, but it's the way they see the world. It's their whole identity. Everything is bound up in looking through these lenses at the world around them. So it's the Emerald City, the most beautiful city in the world. And in the same way, Jesus' sacrifice colors everything we see. They become the lenses that we never take off. We never want to take off because seeing everything through the sacrifice of Jesus helps us to understand what is actually true in the world around us. That there are sinners and there are saints. That our world is corrupted by sin, is groaning for salvation, and we are moving towards that day when one day, finally, all sin will be dealt with and creation will be made new and there will be no more sin. Colors everything. And so we now see those around us through the sacrifice of Jesus for us, a sinful people. It becomes our controlling thought. And so when we see our brothers and sisters, uh, those who Jesus died for, no matter how strong or weak they might be, we recognize that we are to live with them in unity because what unites us is not how strong or weak we are. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that we want their best because Jesus died for them and Jesus is doing everything to ensure that they grow in their relationship with him. And so we want that too. 
because we want what Jesus wants. And so we're going to put all of our effort into that. We want to see our church come together and we want to see people come in from outside and become part of this family through the sacrifice of Jesus so that with one voice we glorify God in all we do in ever greater degree. And there are a couple of implications here for us. We are to live lives of sacrifice for our weakers and brothers and sisters, recognizing that we are all weak and strong. It's not just that some of us are particularly strong and have no weaknesses, and some of us are really weak and have no strengths. We're all a mixture of both of these. There are some things, C.S. Lewis put that well, there are some things that he just doesn't struggle with. He has no concern whatsoever for gambling and doesn't understand people who are addicted to gambling. But he recognizes that that they really do genuinely struggle with it. They're not making it up. They're not lying. They're not choosing to do this. They're really struggling with this problem. And he doesn't understand that. But he knows they need help to escape it. And he'll do whatever is necessary to ensure that they are helped with a problem that isn't his by not putting stumbling blocks in front of them constantly. So he will give up on what he is allowed to do to ensure that they don't fall uh, and struggle. We are all a mixture, and so we need to bear with one another, recognizing that as you graciously bear with the failings of your brother next to you, he is equally graciously bearing with you in your failures and weaknesses as you together walk and grow in Christ. And so this requires a certain gentleness, a certain graciousness, a loving uh, element to our relationship that will naturally unite us together because we're all battling together. We're all struggling. We're all succeeding. We're all failing. God wants us to grow in his strength into the finished article. He doesn't just want to make us that way. There's a process that we go on and we need each other for this. We're to love and encourage one another so that we're built up and blessed. And we notice that Paul has no concept in his mind whatsoever of this simply being, just affirming everything in the weaker brother's life. Just encourage them in their weakness. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying just be nice to them all the time. He's saying that you should be striving for their good, to have them conform to what is good to build them up so they're able to conform to what is good. Not just demanding that they do, but to actually build them up so they can do it as far as you're able in the strength of Christ. As Christians, we have daily to look at lives inside and outside that are far from perfect, are in need of constant change and refinement, and that doesn't come through simply affirming what people are doing because we just can't face the confrontation. We can't face the difficulty, the awkwardness of relationship or whatever it might be. It's easier to live that way in the short term. But this is not pleasing our neighbor for his good so as to build them up. What we want is them to look more like Jesus. And if they can't look like Jesus doing the things they're doing, those things need to be addressed. But they need to be addressed from a place of love and kindness. And so, for all that we are to live in unity together, that we are to live lovingly with one another, we must also recognize we are to encourage one another to be built up. I read an article this past week by a guy called Trevin Wax who uh, was saying that friends who coddle sin in your life or allow you to coddle sin, to keep it, to treasure it, are not your friends. No matter how well you get on, no matter how many interests that you share, 
They are not loving you if they're allowing you to do that. And you are not loving your brothers and sisters if you're allowing them to do that. And that's why this approach has to be more than just words. When people know we love them because we demonstrate it to them every single day, they will far more readily take criticism. They will far more readily seek transformation, reconciliation, unity, because they know that's ultimately what you want. And you must have found it so hard to say that, to do that, to go to those lengths. This is why the Christian church has brought so much transformation to our world over the years, because we've done this, not just said it. I don't know if you saw the interview over this past uh, couple of weeks with one of the, the group Insulate Britain who've been gluing themselves onto the M25 as if the traffic on the M25 ever moves anywhere anyway. But they were interviewed and were asked the question, so have you insulated your house? I don't know. I've got no idea. And you think you want the government to insulate everybody's house, but you're not willing to insulate your own house. And there was an awful lot of, made of that, of the sort of relative hypocrisy of several people who are key uh, folks in Insulate Britain who haven't done the very thing they're demanding the government does for everybody else. And that speaks volumes about a group of people. And it's the reason the church has spread for 2,000 years and every other organization has grown for a while and withered away. Because the church does this and doesn't just speak of it. We are to live for one another ultimately because we need each other. We're to live for one another because we live for God's glory in uh, verses 7 through 12. Don't worry, we're going to pick up the pace here just uh, in, in a wee bit. Paul says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, bearing in mind what I've just said, you have an obligation to bear with those who are weak and to bless them and build them up. Therefore, as Christ has done that for you and as you do that for one another, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. And again, this comes back to what I've just said. Nowhere and no one else truly does this. Nowhere. This is something which the church has done for 2,000 years, which God's people have done for thousands of years before that, because God sits at the heart of it all, and His glory is what we're all striving for, not just being together, not just insulating our houses so that one little facet of society is made a bit better for the next 10 or 15 or 50 years, whatever it may happen to be. What we want is the whole world to glorify God, and God sits at the very heart of it all. So we live for one another because we live for God's glory. And again, Paul draws in Jesus here. And he goes on, he's already mentioned the fact that Scripture again and again encourages and instructs us so that we might have the hope of this uh, coming to pass. And he draws Jesus again in, in verse 8 and points out that all of Scripture has been pointing towards Christ coming to be a blessing to the Jews and to the Gentiles, the big division in the Roman church. So the one thing you're struggling to overcome, the one source of disunity, Jesus came and clearly, demonstrably destroyed that division. And this isn't something new that we're just cooking up because Gentiles want to come in and we just sort of want the number to be bigger, so we're letting them in. He says that God has always wanted the Gentiles. It doesn't matter whether you're reading Psalm 117, whether you're reading Isaiah, whether you're reading Deuteronomy. All of these quotes are drawn together from all different parts of Scripture, and all of them speak with the same voice. 
that the Gentiles should rejoice because God wants them, not just the Jews, but the filthy Gentiles as well, the people who have no understanding of God, no concept of his promises, no idea of his holiness and the need to live for him and love him and serve him. They are other and outside the nations, the faraway people, the people who don't belong in here. Paul says God has always wanted these people to be drawn in and to be made apart. And that's why Jesus came. And so if God is able to deal with those divisions, then you certainly are able to deal with them. Because what God wants is a people who are able to testify to his goodness, to his majesty, his might, his authority, his love, his mercy, his grace. And who is better able to do that than two groups of people that should hate each other and not even live in the same house as one another, but they're united together because of this person, Jesus. They sacrifice everything they have for one another. They love one another and bless each other and challenge each other and give each other everything they have. What more do you want to testify to how amazing God is that he can weave together a family like that from a group of people as disparate and broken as the ones he's gathered together. Now, scale that up to a factor, I don't know, of a thousand times greater in terms of division and difficulty to get along, and you're here today. How much greater testimony to the glory of God is there in the world than the church, where you can have Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics and secular humanists and people from a a religious Christian background all united together through the blood of Jesus and made into one family? I mean, it's insane to even try that. And yet God succeeds every single day. It's unbelievable. And it speaks not just of the power of God, but His grace that He's willing to deal with all the problems you have in your life and all the problems your neighbor has in his or her life and unite you together so that you love one another. It's why the church has not just endured, but has flourished and is now bigger today than it ever has been in 2,000 years. Because it does this. It lives for the glory of God, testifying to it constantly by embodying it in its unity, in its togetherness, in its ability to deal with the fact that you're different to me, but Christ unites us, and that's all that really matters. We live for one another because we live for God's glory. And as the passage closes in verse 13, perhaps most astonishingly of all, well, maybe this speaks to my sort of fairly large degree of cynicism as I look at the world and life and and so on, that we live for one another because we are a hopeful people. There are more uh, convertible cars sold in the United Kingdom than anywhere else in continental Europe. That is an absurd statistic. And it is a testimony to a sort of a really strange, wistful hopefulness that we have as a nation that tomorrow things will be better than they are today. Because let's face it, days like today are fairly few and far between that we might justify having a soft-top car. And yet there is a hopefulness to us all, to humanity, of something better, but there is no hope of ever achieving anything better outside of God. Paul closes this whole section by saying, may the God of, not power, love, mercy, grace, anything else, the God of hope, 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Because the joy and the peace in believing that you experience speaks to the fact that God is doing this for somebody else who is totally different to you, who you shouldn't get on with by human standards. And yet God is the eternal optimist. He knows where all this is going. He knows things will be better ultimately, and he is leading us on towards that end through Christ, the means by which it's accomplished. And so as we live experiencing the joy and peace of salvation, as we know the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, we abound in hope because we recognize that the church tomorrow will be bigger and stronger and flourish and thrive far more abundantly than it will do today because of Christ. Because it has done for 2,000 years. doesn't mean Ladywell Baptist will always be here. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Churches have their day and, and wither away. Most of the New Testament churches are gone now. And yet the church remains. Because Christ will not have anyone prevail over his church. Because it's his church. It's his body. And it is united together as we look to the future and gives us however much we struggle, however much we have struggled, and there have been struggles in the life of our church, there have been struggles in the life of every church, we look to the future with hope, knowing that as Christ leads us, matures us, and unites us, we will be in a far better place than in the dark days that we've perhaps left behind. The church grows, it flourishes, it thrives, it is better tomorrow than it was yesterday. Jesus loves us, and that's why he chose us to come and be uh, our Savior to us. His love doesn't end with us, though. His love expects that it will grow and overflow and bless those around us. And this is the means by which we make it evident to the world around us. This is the means by which we feel it within the church. We live it out in our midst. We are united together because of Jesus. And so as we look to the future, we live with hope that the church will experience not just greater unity, but greater blessing as it reaches out into the world and sees sinners saved and the kingdom of God come. So let's pray together that we would know not just this unity, but also the growth of God's people in the world. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the love of Jesus. Lord, we read so much of him in your word, and all too often we read of him merely as an example. And Jesus is a wonderful example, and we thank you for the example he is to each one of us, for the way that we can look at him and see how we're supposed to live. And yet, Lord, he is not merely an example. He is the means by which we have been saved, the necessary means. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved than that of Jesus. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would have each one of us daily cast ourselves upon Christ, for he cares for us individually, but he also cares for us corporately together as a united fellowship and as part of a church across this world. So, Lord God, as we cast ourselves upon Jesus, may we in humility bear with the failings and the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters as they bear with ours. Lord, may we love one another daily and be further united by that love. May we grow in it. May we enjoy it. And Lord, as we experience it, may we make it known to those around us so that the kingdom might grow. Your church might expand. Sinners might see something that they cannot see anywhere else. They see good intentions. They see aspirations. They see calls and hear calls to better living and yet never actually see it lived out in the flesh. And yet, Lord, when they look upon us, may they see it actually done 
and not just spoken of. For Lord, this is what will bring true and lasting change, not just to our little community here in Ladywell, but to the whole world. And we know it, Lord, because we've seen it in 2,000 years of church history. So Lord, send us out as a hopeful people, as a joy-filled people, as a blessed people, for we have Christ. And while we have him, we are always growing in strength from day to day, whether we feel it or not. So Lord God, unite us as a fellowship. Have us live this out. And Lord God, we ask that you would strengthen us to that end, to see your name glorified. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.